Um, Colossians 2, beginning at verse 16. Here we go. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from, from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I wonder, have you ever felt judged, excluded, or intimidated by religious people? According to recent surveys, 80% of adults in Connecticut are absolutely or fairly certain that they believe in, uh, that, that they believe in God, that God exists, but only 25% say that they attend any kind of religious service on a weekly or almost weekly basis. And I think many people would say that this is one of the reasons why they're reluctant to attend church, because they've felt judged, excluded, and intimidated by religious people in the past, and they don't want to have that same experience all over again. Now, this is not just a modern phenomenon. It was also a significant concern of the Apostle Paul back in the first century. Look down at the commands that Paul gives in the reading uh, we just read. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18 says, Let no one disqualify you. And if you look up at verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. See, those are the three commands that Paul gives in this section of chapter 2. Uh, now, the, the point is, some of the Christians in Colossae were feeling judged, excluded, intimidated, and Paul was not happy about it. Paul did not want the Christians in Colossae to feel that way, and he didn't want them to treat others in a judgmental, exclusive, intimidating way either. Now, we're going to get in. We need to look at why was this happening and what was this about. So we'll get into the details, but I just want to see the concern that we, that's on the surface of this text. Uh, the Apostle Paul wasn't a fan of any and every form of religion or spirituality. He didn't think that all spiritual paths will always ultimately lead to the same destination. Paul didn't want the Christians in Colossae to take a sort of buffet-style approach to spirituality or religion, sort of mixing and matching all kinds of things from lots of different sources. Uh, he wanted the Christians in Colossae to experience the fullness of life in Jesus Christ and to share that fullness of life in Jesus Christ with others. And he wanted them to steer clear of anything that would to take away from or distract from the fullness of life in Christ Jesus. 
Uh, last week, we looked at some of what it means to have that fullness of life in Christ Jesus, to be forgiven of our sins, to be uh, free from, the powers of, from evil powers, the powers of darkness, uh, to uh, be rooted and built up and established in our faith in him. Now, in this morning's passage, Paul warns us against three forms of religion that can seem attractive to Christians, but that are ultimately destructive. So, verses 16 and 17, Paul warns us against what I'll call traditionalism. Verses 18 and 19, Paul warns us against what I'll call super-spirituality. And verses 20 through 23, Paul warns us against legalism. Uh, so, I want to look at these three things, traditionalism, super-spirituality, and legalism, and why Paul warns us against these three trails, even though he acknowledges they're attractive in some respects. Okay, so let's, let's dig into this uh, and consider each of Paul's warnings in turn. So verse, uh, verses 16 and 17, Paul warns against, um, I'm going to, you have to put a label on these things, so I, I'm going to, Call it traditionalism. What is traditionalism? Traditionalism says we've always done it that way, and that's what matters more than anything else. Our traditions are good, so don't you dare question them or try to change them. Now, of all the people in the ancient world, the Jewish people had the strongest reasons of all to hold to their traditions and not change them. Why? Because many of their traditions were rooted in the commands that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So, Leviticus 11, God told the people of Israel not to eat certain kinds of foods. It says you must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Then Leviticus 23, God told the people of Israel, observe certain festival days. So he talks about festivals, which were annual events, new moons, which were monthly celebrations, and Sabbath, which was a weekly routine. Uh, but in Leviticus 23, God says to the people, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, my sacred assemblies. And over time, faithful Jews had held to these traditions, even at great cost to themselves. So during the Maccabean period, about 200 years before Paul was writing, there were several Jews who were martyred for refusing to eat unclean meat. They would put a piece of pork before them. This was the, the, these were the occupying armies that were occupying Jerusalem, and they would say, eat this. And these Jewish men and women would say, no, because God told us not to back in the law of Moses. And some of them lost their lives for it. And these were well-known stories in Paul's time of sort of the, the heroes of the faith, the martyrs who had even to the, held on to these traditions even to the point of death. So these things were not taken lightly. People had suffered and died to uphold these traditions. And many of these traditions were also beautiful. The three, there were three annual festivals, Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the early summer, Tabernacles in the fall, and they had a deeply symbolic meaning. They brought the community together. They weren't bad traditions. And so when Gentiles, like the people in Colossae, came to believe in Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah who had been promised to Israel, many Jewish Christians thought it would be good for these new Gentile Christians 
to adopt our time-honored traditions as well. Right? They had lots of reasons to think the Gentile Christians, people coming from other nations and religious backgrounds who now believe in the, same, in, in the Messiah, they should adopt all the traditions that we've held for hundreds of years. But Paul, now Paul was a Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, to the, all the nations of the world. But he was still a faithful Jew. He was still thankful for his heritage, observant and respectful of the law. But Paul here insisted it's not necessary for the Christians in Colossae to hold to all the Jewish traditions about food and drink and about festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Verse 17, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, that's how Paul understood all of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, there are basically two kinds of laws. Uh, one kind of law, uh, one, 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 one group of laws, we might call the moral law, which is basically love God and love your neighbor as yourself and commands that follow directly from those two things. And those commands are all reaffirmed by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. So when it says don't lie and don't steal and don't commit adultery, those are all expressions of loving your neighbor or don't worship idols. That's an expression of loving God. All those commands are reaffirmed in the New Testament. Those are all commands that Christians should still continue to follow because they reflect God's abiding will for human beings. But there's also another group of laws in the Old Testament that we might call ceremonial laws. Laws about feast days and foods and sacrifices and sort of symbolic matters. And Paul saw all those ceremonial laws as pointing forward to the person of Jesus and being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Uh, uh, they were sort of good and necessary for a time, but they were never meant to be permanent. They were always meant to serve a greater purpose, and they uh, found their fulfillment in Jesus. Paul wasn't the only one who uh, said this. Uh, the author of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now, in using that language of shadow and form or substance, Paul and the author of Hebrews may have been referring to uh, an analogy that was originally developed by the Greek philosopher Plato. Uh, and this, uh, so, so here's basically how it goes. Imagine that you are held in chains at the bottom of a dark cave. And the entrance is high above you, and you're, all you can see are the shadows on the wall in front of you. Okay, so you're sitting down at the bottom of a dark cave, entrance way above you, all you can see is the shadows in front of you. If that's all you've got to go on, if that's, and, and this is an analogy to describe the human condition, okay? So if that's all you've got to go on, the shadows on the wall, if that's the only access to reality that you have for the moment, you will watch those shadows very carefully. And if you see the shadow of a person or an outline of something, maybe you might not even know quite what it is, and you think, oh, maybe they're coming closer to the cave, right? May, you might feel excitement, hope, fear. Um, but let's say that a person actually comes into the cave and sets you free from your chains and brings you out into the light and you can see that person face to face, guess what? 
you are not going to look at those shadows on the wall anymore. Because now you've been brought out from darkness into the light, and you can look that person in the eye who came into the cave to deliver you. You would look into the face of your deliverer and rejoice in your deliverance. And Paul says, that's what you should do with Jesus. Because all the ceremonial laws, all the sacrifices and feasts and rules and the old, ceremonial rules in the Old Testament were like shadows on the wall. They were like sketches or outlines of the figure of Jesus himself that you could gradually see the kind of person that he would be. But Paul says, now he's come. And he's brought you out of the darkness and into the light and set you free from sin and shame. And now look at him. Paul says, don't fixate on the shadows anymore. Hold on to the substance. Hold on to Jesus and hold everything else lightly. Right? Hold on to the fullness of life in Jesus. Now, you might say, well, how does this apply today? Right? Back then, some of the Christians in Colossae were feeling like maybe we should follow the time-honored Jewish traditions. Now, my guess is most of us haven't felt like that. Right? I've, I, none, my, I've had uh, Jewish friends, but I've never felt uh, pressured by the, any of them that I should adopt the time-honored Jewish traditions. Right? Most of us probably haven't felt that way. Right? So how do we apply this passage in our own context? Well, I think the same pattern of uh, what I'll call traditionalism can crop up in other ways. Now, there are some Christian groups and Christian churches that place a great emphasis on questions of food and drink and holidays or ceremonial observances. Uh, so one example, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church insists that the Sabbath must be kept from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, just like the Jewish people kept it in the Old Testament. That's why Seventh-day Adventists worship on Saturday, not on Sunday. And they also teach that Christians should observe the food laws in the Old Testament for health reasons. Now, is there anything wrong with worshiping on Saturday or following a certain diet for health reasons? No. But according to verse 16, those things are not necessary for a follower of Jesus. They're not essential. They're not something uh, that are they're necessary practices for a Christian. Other examples, uh, other churches have made it an absolute rule that no one who is a member of their church should ever, under any circumstances, drink any alcohol. Now, the Bible warns against the dangers of drunkenness and overindulgence. So there are many warnings in the Bible against that. But the Bible doesn't say that all followers of Jesus must completely abstain from all alcohol at all times. It's a matter of conscience, we might say, where Christians ought to exercise wisdom, self-control, and, above all, concern for the well-being of others around them. Uh, the early church historian Eusebius tells us that James, who was the main leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, drank no wine or strong drink and did not eat meat. So he was a vegetarian, teetotaling pastor. But James was also gracious. He didn't insist that everyone else had to be a vegetarian, and he didn't insist that no one else should ever drink any alcohol. Right? He was gracious about it. You see, it's a, it's, um, it's a matter of wisdom, self-control, and concern for others 
all these things about food and drink, holidays and ceremonial observances. I think another way uh, that this pattern might crop up is as people, uh, we tend to, we just all have a natural tendency to assume that our favorite cultural traditions are the best ones. Uh, so just a basic example, for many of us, English is our first language, right? Many of us grew up speaking English at home. It was the first language we knew before we learned any other languages, if we've learned other languages. Uh, but let's say, uh, maybe, maybe for some of you, maybe English isn't your first language. Maybe it's just the second or third or fourth language that you've learned. Um, what Paul would say to Christians is that to all of us who have grown up speaking English, if someone comes to our church and wants to join the church who learned English as their second or third or fourth language, we should never make them feel like an outsider or second-class citizen. Right? Paul would say, in Christ, we're all brothers and sisters. No matter what language we grew up speaking, no matter what kinds of food and drink we enjoy uh, from perhaps our own cultural background, we're all fully welcomed by the Lord to belong to Jesus and to be brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, no matter what language or culture we come from. You see, if Paul insisted that the Gentile Christians didn't have to follow all the Jewish traditions, we should also be careful not to insist that everyone else around us must follow all of our own cultural traditions. So I think those are some ways uh, that this principle applies. Romans 15, 7, Paul said, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see, that should be near the top of our priority list. Right? To welcome one another under the authority of Jesus and not allow any other attachments to traditions to hinder that. Right? So that's the first trap Paul warns against, the trap of traditionalism. The second trap Paul warns against in verses 18 and 19 we'll call super spirituality. Insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions. Now this verse, verse 18, is challenging to translate uh, because there are a few words in this verse that rarely or never occur in the rest of the New Testament. On uh, this whole section that we're reading today, uh, if you read commentaries, they all say it's the most challenging section of Colossians to interpret because Paul is clearly warning against something that he thinks is unhealthy, but uh, he doesn't identify precisely who are these people who are promoting this teaching. Uh, so is, were they Jews or were they mixing together some Jewish and pagan practices? Did they start out within the Christian community? Did they come from outside the Christian community? Is Paul worried about just one group of people or are there multiple groups advocating different things? Regardless of the details, which we probably will never know for certain, what's clear is that some people were getting very excited about their super spiritual experiences and in the process making others who hadn't had such experiences feel left out. So Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you. That word disqualify was used in athletic contests. It was describing an umpire ruling against a player, throwing them out of the game, disqualifying them. Uh, you see, these people were making ordinary Christians, ordinary followers of Jesus, feel like second-class citizens at best and completely disqualified at worst. So you might say, well, okay, so how are they doing that? What were these people insisting on, or other translations say delighting in? It says three things, asceticism. Now, that same word occurs down in verse 23, 
along with severity to the body. So asceticism is a word that simply refers to harsh practices of self-deprivation. Uh, uh, the New King James translates it false humility. Uh, you see, these people were insisting on or boasting about their own practices of probably fasting or other kinds of uh, self-deprivation. And they were sort of making a big deal about these things. Uh, second thing they were promoting is worship of angels. Again, we don't know exactly what they were doing. Maybe they were literally bowing down to angels and singing the praises of angels. Maybe they were calling on specific angels to protect them against evil spirits. They thought that the angels were the ones that you should call on to help you. Uh, or maybe they were claiming to have visions of angels, even visions of angels worshiping God and joining in the angelic worship of God in a sort of trance-like state. Uh, the next phrase is going on in detail about visions. Uh, so, you know, whatever exactly they were doing, uh, there, there's, there's fasting, angels, and visions that are involved. Okay? Now, are fasting, angels, and visions inherently bad things that Christians should reject? No. Uh, Jesus encouraged and expected his followers to fast and pray at times. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you fast not if you fast. So the, Jesus' assumption is that Christians at some point, at some times, uh, will uh, fast from food or, or other things for a period of time, uh, maybe a meal or maybe a day or something, to set aside time for prayer and, and seeking God in particular circumstances. So that's something that Christians have done throughout the history of the church and isn't necessarily a sort of extreme ascetic practice. Um, uh, but uh, that's something Jesus in, encouraged. Uh, we also see angels in the Bible, right? Several examples in the Bible where angels come to help or warn God's servants, especially in times of great need and distress. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So God sometimes sends angels to help people. Uh, I've heard some credible accounts of people who have, I think, uh, best of my understanding, uh, have experienced that in times of great need and distress. And in the scriptures, God's people also occasionally see visions. Doesn't happen to everybody, but uh, even Paul, who's writing here, Paul in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 12, Paul refers to a vision of he that he himself had, a vision of the third heaven. He says, he says, I was caught up into paradise and heard things that cannot be told. So, fasting angels and visions are not inherently bad things. The problem here is that these people were boasting about them. They were boasting about these spiritual experiences, puffing themselves up, sort of inflating themselves individually, rather than contributing to the nourishment of the body of Christ as a whole. That's the emphasis of verse 19. They're not participating in sort of helping everyone grow in Christ. They're just getting all puffed up about their own private experiences and how great they are because they've had these amazing super spiritual experiences. You know, being puffed up with pride as a result of spiritual experiences is a danger that Jesus and Paul both warned against. 
So when Jesus talked about fasting, he said, when you fast, don't do it to be seen by other people. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus didn't want his disciples boasting about how long they fasted or what all what they fasted from and how much of a spiritual athlete they they are no simply a way of seeking god in prayer and when paul wrote about his vision of the third heaven pretty much the next thing he said was this to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So Paul recognized that super spiritual experiences like seeing a vision or seeing an angel can easily promote pride and conceit. And Paul says, God had to humble me after I had this great vision by sending me a very painful thing in my life and not taking it away, a thorn in my flesh. And Paul said, I asked God to take away this thorn three times, and God said no. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul actually learned more from his weakness and his need for God in his weakness than he did from his vision of heaven. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul said this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, interestingly, maybe some people are claiming to speak in tongues of angels, but if I, if I do all that but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says love and humility and holiness, those are the true signs of growth in maturity in Christ. Not having super spiritual experiences. Okay, now as much as those happen sometimes, uh, they are not in themselves a mark of Christian maturity. So, applying it to today, if someone comes to you and tells you with great excitement how they've seen a vision or had a dream or had an out-of-body experience where they've seen heaven or God or an angel has spoken to them and given them special insight into the future of the world and you should come along with them to hear this special speaker or watch some guy on YouTube so that you too can have the same experience, Paul would say, don't get carried away. Don't think, oh no, I must be missing out on something really important about the Christian life because I haven't had one of those experiences. Now again, I'm not saying that these things never happen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 to 22 says we shouldn't be dismissive, but rather discerning in our attitude towards spiritual experiences. So it says, these verses say, don't quench the Holy Spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, maybe you've had such an experience. Maybe you've had an encounter with an angel or a vision or a dream or a strong impression that you feel like God has laid upon you. What would this passage say? Well, first it would give a warning. Beware the temptation to spiritual pride. If the Apostle Paul was going to become conceited because of his vision, well, we all have to beware the temptation to spiritual pride after having such an elevated experience. And Paul would say, don't go on and on to everybody that you meet about all that you've experienced, right? Don't go on and on in detail about visions like these people were doing. 
and don't look down on other Christians who may not have had the same experience. Instead, what Paul would say is, hold fast to Jesus, interpret your experience in light of the truth of God's word, don't let your experience carry you away from God's word, but let it remind you of the truths of God's word. I think that's why one way you can tell whether a vision or some kind of experience is from God is does it reinforce truths that are in the Bible? And does it sort of remind you and challenge you and focus you on those things? And you can thank God. Thank God for the truth that he's reminded you of. And share whatever is helpful to others according to their needs. It might be helpful to share about your experience at times with others, especially people who know you well. Uh, but it's not necessary to share about it with everybody, right? Because we don't need to boast about it. Uh, but again, I think that's what this passage would say if you've had such an experience. Um, so Paul wants us to avoid the trap of super spirituality, but instead stay plugged in to Jesus... Verse 19, hold fast to the head and experience real spiritual growth alongside other Christians in the body of Christ. Right? To help one another grow together. To think about how can I love and serve my neighbor. That might be the most spiritual thing that you do today. If you think after the service ends, how can I love and serve somebody else who's sitting in the pews here? How can I love and serve my neighbor? Maybe go up to them and welcome them or encourage them or ask how they're doing, ask how you can pray for them, whatever, right? That might be the most spiritual thing that you do um, today, helping somebody else grow in Christ. All right, so Paul warned against traditionalism. He warned against super spirituality. Third danger he warns against in verses 20 through 23 is legalism. Now, legalism can be defined as relying on man-made rules for salvation or for spiritual growth. So, in these verses, Paul appeals to the Colossian Christians with a rhetorical question. Why submit to humanly devised rules that Christ died to free you from? Verse 21 gives some examples. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. That probably refers back to the rules about food and drink that we talked about in verse 16. But Paul acknowledges, look at verse 23 for a moment. Paul acknowledges that these humanly devised rules can seem attractive to Christians. Right? What does he say? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Right? Well, he's warning the people because there's something attractive about them. They have an appearance of wisdom. Uh, when I was living in New Haven, I met a man who had grown up uh, attending a Christian church, but when he was in prison as an adult, he had converted to Islam. And part of what attracted him to Islam is that he had lived a very undisciplined and lawless life as a young man. That's why he ended up in prison. Uh, and Islam offered a very disciplined and orderly way of life. Very clear list of rules to follow, five pillars, and a community of people who are committed to following those rules together. See, there was an attraction to something that's very defined that we can say, I've followed that list of rules. I've done it. I've made progress. 
Or take another different kind of example. A few years ago, The Atlantic, uh, which if you don't know it, it's a secular magazine, uh, ran an article entitled, The Church of CrossFit. The subtitle was, Gyms are starting to fill spiritual and social needs for many non-religious people. And uh, several people have sort of commented on this. And, uh, but CrossFit isn't just an intense workout program. It also functions in some ways like a church, a community where people are expected to hold each other accountable and actively invite outsiders to join. Now, I think the church can learn something from groups like CrossFit because uh, in some ways, often, they're doing some things, sometimes better than we are, but some things that we should be doing, right? Being a community, on a mission, etc., and, and having each other's back and challenging each other when we need to challenge each other. Uh, but Paul here reminds us that humanly invented rules of whatever kind whether it's workout regimens, dieting programs, or anything else, none of those things can affect heart-level spiritual transformation in the way that Jesus can. You see, that's what Paul doesn't want the Christians to lose. The most important thing of all is the transforming power of Jesus himself. At the end of this verse, he says, they have in, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's saying your body might end up in better shape. You might feel better. You might look better on the outside. But humanly devised rules and regimens will not remove the pride in your heart. And in fact, they may only inflame it. And you may only end up more proud of what you have accomplished and further away from actually depending on God and trusting him than you were before. You see, man-made rules can seem attractive to Christians for many reasons, but Paul says they don't produce lasting spiritual growth. So Paul warns us, don't embrace the way of legalism and don't mix faith in Jesus Christ with a long list of your own rules that you add on and try to impose on others. Now, what we've seen this morning is Paul's warned us against three false trails, traditionalism, super-spirituality, legalism. And in the next few weeks, in chapter 3, Paul will show us the good way forward to grow in Jesus Christ. But before we conclude today, let me speak to you. If you're exploring Christianity, if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, you know, maybe your experience of Christianity so far has been seriously tainted by one or more of these things, by traditionalism, by super-spirituality, by legalism. Maybe your impression of Christianity has been it's a long list of don'ts, like verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Or that it's an exclusive club of people who boast about strange spiritual experiences. Maybe you felt judged or excluded or intimidated by Christians who have fallen into one of these traps. If that's you, I have good news for you. Jesus Christ is not like that. If you read the New Testament Gospels and you listen to what Jesus says and you see how he treated people, you will see that he's approachable. He's hospitable. And he forgives the sins of everyone who turns to him. 
and he can transform people from the inside out no matter where you're coming from and no matter what you've experienced before. So let me encourage you to look to Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, let me encourage us to do the exact same thing. Look at Jesus and don't ever take your eyes off him. In each of these three sections, do you notice, Paul puts a truth in there about Jesus. In each of these three warnings, verse 17, he says, Christ is the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. Verse 19, he calls Christ the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. And in verse 20, he says, with Christ you died. In other words, Christ has freed you by, by dying on your behalf and you dying with him spiritually. He's freed you from the things that used to control you and used to make you a slave to fear. And in him, you have a wonderful life of fullness and freedom ahead of you. So for those, so if you're exploring Christianity or if you've been a Christian for a long time, look at Jesus and he will keep us on the right path. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul and we thank you for that words that were written to people in such a different place and time can speak to our own concerns in our time and in our culture. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see and your surpassing greatness, that as we fix our eyes on you, that you would protect us from being drawn away into any of these traps that we might be particularly vulnerable to. And Lord, that we might display your character to one another and uh, live with our hope fixed on you. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. If you turn your hymnals, please, to number 180. This hymn has some marvelous harmony, so if you know, happen to know the alto part or the tenor or the bass, sing it out. I normally sing the bass, and so I might slip into it, even though I'm not allowed to up here. Let's all rise. Mm -hmm. 